You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode 41 and we're recording on January 25th, 2015. I'm Paul Ellis and I'm joined by my co-hosts Mayor Wilson and Katie Brisky. Hi Mayor and Katie. How are you today, Mayor? I'm doing great. How are you today, Paul? I've been a little under the weather. I've been fighting this upper respiratory thing. It's been kind of knocking me out a little bit, but we don't want to hear about that. We want to hear about you. I'm doing good. We've got so many things going on with the press right now. We are just, we've got a ton of submissions in that we're reading and uh, going to be signing some people really soon. So lots and lots going on. We have two books, I think, that are going to drop in February. Uh, backed mine up a little bit, so it's not going to come out probably until April, the third book in my series. But, yeah, we've got all these other books that are coming out that are just fabulous. So things are just really cracking over at the, the, the publishing house. Plus, we hired a new intern. Well, not hired. We got her through the college, so she doesn't get any money. But uh, we're really happy to have an intern on board at the publishing house, so that's really cool, too. Interns are it awesome. It sounds like y'all are busy. Yeah. 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 She's she's art. She's just jumped in with both feet. It's so uh, such a joy to have her. Anyway, what's up with you, Katie? Um, I have a novel coming out in March, so I've started making my spreadsheet of people I'll be guest blogging for and podcasts I'll be appearing on. Yes. Yes, Paul. Did you have something to say? Oh no, no that, that was a cheer. Was, I that, see. That was yeah. I understand. Cheering. I was like, that what's was, going? That was the cheering of the crowd. Katie. I was like, what <laughs> is that? I hear a hissing noise. Um, no, no, it's the crowd goes wild. <laughs> Okay, with you now. Um, I'm also healthy. That's exciting. Uh, I seem to be in the minority on that one. Um, yes, and I just, yes. I'm I glad just, you. I'm jealous. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just got back from my 10 day jaunt down to Maine um, for the, my Stone Coast MFA program. Uh, so it's a creative writing master's program, but you go down for 10 days every six months and do workshops and lectures and school stuff. Uh, so I'm very excited. I will be working with uh, James Patrick Kelly this upcoming semester, and we'll uh, be working on some co- podcasting stuff. Uh, podcast like this one. So listeners, as you know, see what I did there. Each myth-behaving show features a special guest from the literary world, um, usually a writer, a publisher, agent, editor, anyone else connected to the world of publishing. And we have a very special guest today, PC Herring. Hi. No crowd noise. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> thank you for being here. And Katie, I have to say thank you for that amazingly awesome introduction. I'm so glad it's on pod because I'm going to throw that back at you all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> My nemesis. Yeah. Shh. Be very quiet when hunting books in the library of a misbehavior. Okay, this means that it's time for something from the Library of the Myth Behavior. Today we are discussing Cybrosis by P.C. Herring. This is a cyberpunk thriller. Agent Cyrus is the world's first cyborg and a top agent for the Center for National Security and Citizen Protective. But when a mission goes wrong, she finds herself embroiled in conspiracies and deadly plots. The big question on everyone's mind, who is Cybrosis? Which I thought was fantastic, by the way, Paul. Thank uh, you very Other much. Paul. I, I had a lot of fun reading this book. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. You know, you, you spend so much time working on it, and 
and you know people tell you they pick it up and you and you see and you see the numbers go through with the downloads and, and the sales ranks and you wonder do they actually like it <laughs> so i'm really glad to hear that you that you enjoyed it paul thank you well yeah. this this book takes me back to when i was a wee thing <laughs> a wee weirder than i am now um because i actually heard this first as a podcast um, so for me, it was really interesting having gone through the entire thing as a podcast, like, what, four or five years ago now? Um, uh, yeah, five now at this point. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I'm old. We're all old. Um, but also now actually reading it as a print copy. So seeing that evolution for me was really, really cool. Um, also, I didn't realize that Tech Guy's name was spelled like that in my head. It was <laughs> Tech Guy. Yeah, yeah, there was a little bit of a uh, of a spelling bastardization on that one to make it work, but um, I, I enjoyed it. And the uh, voice actors who had to either read the part or voice the part didn't seem to have any problems with it either. So it's, no, I didn't I, have any it, problems. It stuck. It's just when you get um, something you've only heard, right, and you've never mm-hmm. seen it written down, so you kind of invent your own spelling. Yeah, um, I had a listener, actually a close friend of mine, he wrote in when the podcast was going live because one of the companies that you hear a lot about, especially towards the middle and the back half of that book, is a company called Cyber Medical Technologies, um, which in the book I abbreviate as SMT. And he he rightly called me. I says, uh, doesn't cyber start with a C? <laughs> and I said, well, technically, but I I spelled it like science and cyber, so it's S C I B E R. It's like, oh, you're a writer, aren't you? I'm like, yep. <laughs> uh, what did you I, think, Mary? <laughs> I loved it. I I really the pace on this was so fast. It's just one thing after another and those pages just kept turning so fast uh i had i had some a couple sleepless nights where i was staying up way too late reading this (laughs) you just made my day mayor (laughs) that was great i loved it one of the things about it that for me that made it uh was the lean writing uh you didn't hyper explain everything you uh left a lot of things in there for the reader to intuit uh, and in a good way, it's not like I had to, to hunt around to find out what everything meant. It was obvious within context. And that is a skill that I'm trying to master myself. So that it was a learning experience also reading this for me. Thank you. And and that's one of the things that I've, I've, I consistently struggle against, both when I was writing Cybrosis and now as I'm writing my, my future projects and my current projects, is trying to avoid those, those Tolkien-esque pages and pages and pages of info dump because you've got to keep the story moving. And if you're playing, if you're playing the story from the perspective of a specific character, in this case, uh, 90% of the books is from Cyrus's perspective, she, as a character in this universe, already knows what half of this terminology means. So as a writer, you can't stop and give her word count to actively think about what these terms mean that she's been, in theory, using like we use the Internet every day. Um, so I'm, I, it, it was a balance of keeping the reader informed, but at the same time keeping the story moving and keeping it true to the character's mindsets in, in the scenario. So I'm glad, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad I found a good balance for you, Paul. Uh, for me as well, because I mean, I Facebooked you before we did this podcast saying, hey, what does CNSCP stand for again? Because in my head it was just, it was an entity, right? Much as it would be for Cyrus. Yeah, and, and, um. You know, that, not one of my finest moments with that one. I, I mean, I like CNSCP. It works. If I had to go back and do it again, I might have streamlined that one down a little bit. But, I like it. CNSCP. Um, CNSCP, yes. Um, has a certain je ne sais quoi to it, yes? Uh, uh, so, yeah. 
just make you uh, back hate me again. It's all good. Continue. Yeah, you do that. Thanks. It was funny because I was trying to put this into, you know, if in Katie, I know you're you're in Canada, and Mara, forgive me, I'm not sure if you're in the United States or not, um, but close enough. It's Vegas, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but but you know, we, we we suffer from this alphabet soup of government agencies, and I said, you know what? No. I'm not making her remember the CIA or the NSA or the DOD or the D, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just figured, you know what? Screw it. In the future, all of this alphabet soup has been just rolled into one security force. And that's the center. Um, the center that, or a CNSP. Or a CNSP, yes. So, yeah, well, I like that concept. That's a great concept. One of the other things that I really liked about your writing was how detailed your fight scenes were. I mean, Thank you just you. really, you really brought those to life and you could, you could really picture in your head, you know, it was like, oh, this could be a movie easy because you could just exactly see the the progression of the fights and the movements of, of especially, you know, from Cyrus's point of view when she was doing her battles and things. This is really clever, really, really well done. Well, thank you. I um, I wrote the earliest drafts of this when I was in college, and I think I may have weirded out one or two of my roommates during the time because I would actually get up and get out of my chair and actually start stepping through. I mean, I'm not a martial artist. I have no formal training whatsoever. Um, most of what I know comes from watching action movies or researching specifically. Um, but and and I would occasionally get a partner to help me with you know some of the body blocking situations. But we would actually step through um, some of those sequences. Um, so I made sure I had down what I wanted to have happen and make sure I'm, it I'm, worked within the realms of physics. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one that does that because it's on more than one occasion I've had either my wife or my children come in and go, what are you doing? <laughs> get over here, I'm going to punch you. Out. Get over here, I'm going to grab you by the neck. What? What? That's right. <laughs> no, much research, I promise, I promise. Dad's being weird again, stop him. Dad, stop being weird. Yeah, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Speaking uh, of which, what... What what started you down this weird path of writing? <laughs> I blame my gaming background. Um, I was when when I was in my later high school and early college years, I was playing um, free form uh, post to form RPGs. This wasn't a systematic game like a Dungeons and Dragons or World of Darkness system. It was just a hey, here's a character, here's a setting, have fun, and we would just post to forums and we would bounce back and forth. And Cyrus was a character that I created for one of those for one of those games, and I had built a backstory for her, which at the time seemed all important. Now I can't even remember. It has very little um, in common with the Cyrus in Cybrosis, but the game, as these things were at the time, ended up crashing and burning and, and pittered out because there was no real organized leadership. And I was really disappointed because I wanted to explore Cyrus's character and explore her backstory just a little bit more than the you know two weeks of gameplay we actually had a chance to do. Um, at the same time, I was taking, I was in college looking for another elective and I decided to do a, what the heck, a short stories course. And so we go through the course, and the the first assignment comes up of you know generating ten ideas for a short story, and this idea that eventually turned into Cyrus was one of those ideas because it was in the back of my head. 
the professor liked it. He told me to write it, and the rest, as they say, is is um, forgive the cliche, is history. Um, and um, I got a taste of the Kool Aid and haven't really looked back. So that's really cool. She was a character that just wouldn't leave you alone, eh? She's never left me alone. Ha! That's I mean, why we love her. I mean, she she. <laughs> You guys have read the story, and spoiler alert for those of you who didn't, who haven't yet, but what she does to Quincy, <laughs> I didn't want her to do. <laughs> it's like, no, I need him, no. And she's like, no, I, I'm doing this to him, and you, you just have to deal with it. I'm like, Damn it. So, um, yeah, she's always been a little bit of a, of a lovable pain in my ass ever since she was first conceived. Of truth and misery. Of Truth and Mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. PC, please feel free to answer this for us. You can never have too many projects at once. Oh, man. Um, two, maybe three words. Katie, I know you're, you're the copywriter, so you can fix me on this. Uh, double-edged sword. Um, two and a half. There's a hyphen. Two and a half. Okay, there's a hyphen. Good. Um, you know, I used to think that you could never have too many projects at once because if you get stalled writing one or you were waiting on audio from somebody for a, a podcast version of something, you could always jump to something else and then jump back and always have different projects in the in, in various stages. Um, but something happened in 2013 – well, 2012 is really where it started, but 2013, 2014 specifically where I realized, no, no, I've got to, sli- I got to cut back. Um, I had at one time in various stages of between brainstorming and audio production and print production probably six or seven different projects, and I couldn't keep them all straight. Uh, because every time I was working on one thing, like if I was working on Slipspace, which is the next – project i'm putting out i was feeling guilty because i wasn't editing the cybrosis sequel and when i was working on the cybrosis sequel i was feeling guilty because i wasn't working on this thing for the anthology that i had been asked to contribute to um so while i do support the idea of having multiple projects in the pipeline especially at different stages i do think there is an upper limit and I do think it's possible to have too many projects at once. And it just depends on what that number is for you as a writer. Do you find it helpful to be working in different genres? Like say you're working on a short story, but then you're also doing audio production. Or is it just like sheer work, workload at that point? No, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to work in different genres and different mediums. Because again, if I'm not feeling creative enough to to sit down and actually put words on a page in in the Cybrosis sequel, I can turn around and jump out of Cyberpunk, go into Space Opera, and edit the uh, edit Slip Space, or work on a um, you know one of, the, one of the anthology projects that we've got going on. So it it is it is nice because the difference in genre does help to put a little bit of a boundary up between no I can't do that here because I don't have cyborgs in this world I have spaceships <laughs> in this world or things like that um, but at the same time I'm I'm also fairly restrictive in the in the genres I am currently inactively writing in so I don't know if I can really claim to cross genre as much but there you have it that's cool. 
Um, something I noticed with cybrosis, though, just kind of circling back to that, was that um, the whole world feels so real and fleshed out. We talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and something I really appreciate about it is that you have all of the cool tech stuff. But then you've also got this real human element to it as well. Um, both Cyrus and her past relationship with Tyson and then her friendship with Chen, which I think is adorable. Um, <laughs> Wait to see what happens in book two. <laughs> ah! Um, <laughs> So what I was going to ask before you have ruined my life, apparently, um, how do you balance all of that cool cyber stuff with well-rounded characterization? You know, it's it's got to be about the characters first. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to it and and I'm gonna call them out. You know, say what you will about the technical wizardry that was Star Wars Episode One, um, but the characterization in that movie, in my opinion, <laughs> was very flat. I believe the actors did as best as they could with what they had, but I thought the character, the character was was just uh, they uh, they were just flat. And to and all the technical, whether it's the lightsabers versus in the, the robots and the ships and the planes and all this other stuff, or if it's the the technical mastery that goes into the, into the production values of the CGI and everything. All that technical cannot make up for bad characters that you just want to roll your eyes at every time you see them on the screen. Um, I'm not saying Star Wars was that bad, but my my feeling has always been you have to start with the characters. You have to build people and 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 characters that you can empathize with, that you can work with as a creative, and that the audience can like or dislike, as the case may be. And then use the science, the tech, the magic, the fantasy, whatever your genre calls for that makes it unique to litter that in story tell world build and flesh out the universe as a whole but if you if you don't have the characters you're sunk from the beginning uh, it's kind of bad having an empty world and nothing going on in it i guess well, yeah i mean you can create the most vivid world you want but until you put a, a situation and until you put a character in a, in a, in a conflict and you got well, nothing we, to won't, we won't care exactly so well, i'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate here all right so paul versus paul exciting yeah <laughs> fight what what made with with these flat characters? And by the way, I, I happen to agree with mm -hmm. you on that. They didn't actually start to flesh out until two, when uh, our uh, Empire, when Lucas wasn't directing. <laughs> um, but what made it such a hit? What was it about these characters that resonated with people to the point that you know the techno quiz bang was cool, but that wasn't the reason that they went back time and again to watch it? Whose characters are we talking about? Mine or Lucas's? Lucas's. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, if you, I mean, I mean, if you look at, I mean, first of all, I wasn't alive when episodes four, five, and six first hit the theater, so oh. I can't, I can't comment on what happened in the '70s and early '80s. You um, missed a good time. I know I did. I went back and watched uh, the the classic trilogy for its 25th anniversary when they remastered them in the theaters, and oh man, was that an experience. Um, but in in terms of one, two, and three. Um, and I'm talking about the the new trilogy from 2001 and forward. Yeah, I think what happened is that you know people went back to it because it's Star Wars and it's this huge movement and everything. And I'm not trashing Star Wars. Don't get me wrong. I do not want to get hate mail from the Star Wars fans out there. I've got my collection of all six right now, and I cannot wait for the original trilogy to come out on Blu-ray unedited. Believe me. Um, but I just felt like. He was. 
I don't know. I, I think it goes back to the writing. I think the dialogue was stilted in a lot of spot, a lot of spots. Um, you know, Jake Lloyd as a young Anakin, I thought was a good casting choice, but his one liners in the, in the end, when he's flying the ship through the fight and he's not even intending to be doing it, he's like, now this is pod racing. I'm like, no, this is star fighting. And, 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 and things like that. He's just got, you know, he's, it just felt very – it felt forced. It really did. Um, oh, I see what you did there. Yes. It well, no, forced. no, 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 no. That's not <laughs> what I did there. Thank you. Um, no, but it, it felt like – it didn't feel like that is something somebody in that situation would be saying given what's going on. It just looked like he was – like they were trying to throw in as many little one-liners as they could. Don't even get me started on Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. We're just going to say that. <laughs> Move on. Well, I think – Contrasting the two, because let's contrast Cybrosis with Star Wars, because we can do that. Um, oh, dear Lord. Where did <laughs> this come from? I don't know. It just did. Um, it's the mind of Katie. Yeah, anyway. Oh, my God. What I, what I like about Cybrosis and where I think you dodge kind of that trap is that it is very organic. Mm-hmm. Right? For you, it very much was Cyrus that came before anything. Mm-hmm. And then you built the world around her. Whereas when you get to Star Wars 1, 2, and 3, and like you, I was not around in the 70s and 80s, um, it just doesn't feel like it's coming from the characters first it always kind of felt tacked on the beginning to me yeah it did to me too and i think that goes back to some of the things that i i hope and again wasn't around made the original star wars episode four new hope a good piece as well is because lucas had these characters and then he built the universe around them I mean, you can look at the original sketches of the Darth Vader character that he was, I thought, uh, I could have sworn was like going into a comic book or a graphic novel or, again, old and I don't remember off the top of my head. But, you know, he wanted to tell a good story and he fought tooth and nail to tell the story he wanted to tell. And he made compromises based on the technology he had at the time. Whereas I think in the 21st century versions, he went the other way around. He's like, I've got all this cool technology. I've got this very robust universe. I've got an idea of what these stories are going to be. Okay, fine. It's going to be the fall of the Republic, the rise of the Sith. What's my specific storyline within all of that? And and that was the case. And and you know, in, in going back to what you were saying, Katie, um, with Cybrosis, the novel really started with a character who eventually became Cyrus. And there's very little of well, in terms of Cyrus's physical description and her, her technical abilities as a cyborg, she's very much there. But her personality and her, her drive through the story is, is evolved immensely from that original uh, RPG I was playing her in. Um, the original conception of the story that became the first chapter of the book was Chick on Motorcycle at Night. That was it. That was what I put on the paper that I turned in the professor for story ideas, and that was the one he wanted. I still don't know why. <laughs> and when he came back and sent that to me, I'm like, that wasn't what I was hoping to write. He says, no, that's what I want you to write. And so I had to sit down and say, okay, I've got her on a motorcycle at night. Why is she on a motorcycle at night? Because she's chasing someone. Okay. Why is she chasing someone? Because he's done bad things. Why does she care? And as I started working on, on asking myself those consistent why questions, the character of Cyrus, her role as a government agent, and the whole nature of the first chapter really took shape. 
And then as I finished that first chapter, the professor said, okay, this reads more like a first chapter, not a short story. So your next assignment, I want chapter two. Um, then became Sucker. Yeah, no joke. Um, then, then became a question of, okay, given this, what happens next? And that was kind of, you, you know, Katie, you were talking earlier about how it, it felt very organic because it was, because I was writing it a chapter at the time. I wasn't planning ahead until I got through probably what's now the 15th or 16th chapter. Then I realized I wanted to, I need to start wrapping things out. Um, that every next chapter was a, was a question of what happens next, what happens next, what happens next. That's very cool. Um, also, just quickly, because I'm kind of watching the clock. By writing the sequel, um, I know that working with Heather Welliver as the voice actor was huge for you in developing Cyrus's character. Have you found that that's also influenced your writing? Yes and no. Um, it's always it's it's I've always it's always interesting to hear other people's voices on your work and hearing Heather Welliver as Cyrus and George Robb as Briggs and because for Rob. me she she just is Cyrus. Like even when oh, I yeah. see her at cons oh, yeah. and stuff, oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, oh it's yeah. Cyrus. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Love you, Heather. Um, <laughs> um, and there are some there are some scenes in the upcoming sequel that I've I've written and then I've rewritten. I'm as I look at, it, I said, I wonder if Heather can pull that off. Let's find out. And it goes in anyways. I love doing that. Um, yeah, I know you do. Um, you know, to a degree, it influences the writing because now instead of just hearing my voice reading their words, I actually can hear Heather's voice delivering these lines. And or I can hear George as Briggs yelling at Cyrus for the last foul up she just had or what ha whatever it happens to be. So I don't want to say that it has dramatically affected my writing, but I, I know that there's some influence in there. Um, definitely. It's time for myth print tips and tricks of the industry. It's time for another one of our special segments. Mythprint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. PC, what would you consider the most important tip for someone who wants to write in the cyberpunk genre? Mm. You know, a lot of people will tell you to go back and read the cyberpunk novelists of, of you know, the great cyberpunk novelists. Of Gibson. your... Of your thank you, you know, go back and read Gibson, go back and read Asimov, go back and read a little bit of Clark and, and Heinlein. I, not not that Heinlein was a huge cyberpunk author, but Asimov either. But well, yeah, yeah but Clark still, you've got either, his whole but... you've got his whole Foundation series, and you've got you know some of the robotic, you know, his his Three Laws of Robotics, and and that has a little bit of an influence. And I and I certainly would agree with that. But what I would really say is keep an eye on what's coming out. In today's real world, so many things that Gibson wrote about, so many things that the cyberpunk authors of your wrote about are happening today. And technologies that they dreamed of as a great idea are commonplace in, in today's society. So what I have always tried to do as a writer, whether it's cyberpunk or space opera, is take existing theory, existing experimental technology that you read about in like the popular science or the popular mechanics because it's all you know very pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff and adapt that because some of that pie-in-the-sky stuff that's pie-in-the-sky today will be in our hands in 10 years. Uh, so so – while you go back and do your research on where things have come from, 
make sure you're keeping an eye on where things are going. That's really cool. Oh, very cool. Um, do you think that someone that wants to write in cyberpunk should take a look at any noir or any of the old uh, de- pulp detectives or anything like that? I would say that would have to depend on what they're trying to write. If they're trying to write a cyberpunk action, um, you know, like like I've tried to go through, I might not recommend the noir styles. But if you're going for something a little more, you know, again, not to not to sound too much of a cop out here, but if you're trying to write something a little more pulpy, a little more um, in the vein of what you'd read, what you would have read in a Clark's World or an Asimov's, you know, back in the you know, Men from Mars, you know, kind of those those those. Uh, 25 cent magazines you'd get on the newsstands every week absolutely um you know make it get some pulp into it and and have a little bit of fun with it my advice would be it would just basically boil down to write or, or sorry go back and research and read in the genres that you intend to write, whether in, and if you intend to mix the genres up a little bit, then make sure you've got some good heading in both of them or all three of them or however many you want to throw in um, to your little pot of writing. My pot of writing. I like that. I like, I, I like the evolution that you just described to us. That's that whole thing is fascinating. Let's take that one step further. And why don't you walk us through your writing process and tell us what you <laughs> love most about it? My writing process is a consistent work in process. It's always evolving. It's always changing. Um, right now, what I'm doing is in, in the broad steps is after I get done brainstorming, world concept story plot what have you i'll sit down and my my primary writing writing tool is scrivener uh recently evernotes jumped in uh job changed and i picked up an ipad so i'm doing a lot of my actual composition on the ipad and then transferring it over but that's neither here nor there um and i will try to write and outline anywhere between three and six chapters ahead of where i'm actually writing um to give me a basic framework of where I'm going or where I want to be going. But at the same time, if the story takes me someplace that is not in the direction that the framework is pointing to, I will have no problem about going back and changing that framework, depending on what the story is happening. Um, after I get the first draft in, I will do what I'm call, what I call an author edit, where I'll go in and I'll smooth down some of the rough spots because sometimes, especially with my process, a lot of my technology is is kind of working processy. Where I'll say, "Oh yes, she's it's a it's a it's a PEB in chapter one, and then in chapter twenty, I'll describe it as something completely different. Yet it's the same tool in my mind. So I'll, I'll go back and I'll streamline some of that. Um, I'll I'll look at some scenes where I either are am questioning whether or not it's a, it's an appropriate scene. Like, for example, in the Cybrosis sequel, there is a very, very dark scene that I'm not sure I want to put in, or I, I think I want to lighten it up a little bit, and I'm not sure I want to even let the beta reader see it yet. So I'll go in and make some of those broad stroke adjustments. Then I'll put it out to the betas, get their feedback, compile their notes, do my own read-through, put another edit on it and if i haven't done too too much i mean if i haven't rewritten half the book um i'll then do one more just a little streamline pass on it put it into an audio form for production get it into audio 
because um, I do write and podcast my stuff concurrently. So this is I'm going to start to with the next production. The audio will inevitably influence some minor line edits. Um, you know, actors will take lines and write and read them a slightly different way. Um, you know, they'll take do not and say don't or, or something of that ilk, or they say, no, this phrasing doesn't work. Let me try this. I'll say, yeah, that works great. Um, I'll, as a narrator, write, read something differently than I've written, and I'll say, yeah, that makes more sense. You know, just little minor little things like that. Then I'll kick the printed manuscript off to a copy editor, do the process with the copy editor, and then work on getting the book ready for print and e-release at the same time the audio goes live um, on the various audiobook markets. That's the goal in, in terms of my overall process. We'll see what happens. <laughs> that is quite a process. Um, what do you find the most challenging part of all of that? The composition. It's very easy to brainstorm. It's very easy for me to close my eyes and visualize a world or visualize a scene that you would see in a movie. But for me, sometimes translating that image into words is the most painstakingly annoying process I've ever had to go through. I'm working on one project right now where the plot is giving me issues. I don't have the characters nearly as well developed as I would like them to be to be writing what I'm writing. And every time I sit down and write, it feels like an absolute slog. Um, that being said, when I finally finish the daggone thing and I get to the editing process, I hope that I'll have a much better feel of what I've written well, I definitely will have that, um, but also a much better feel of where the story ended up so I can try to readjust the front of it to better point in that direction and then adjust and then work on characterization throughout. In, in some cases, I, I find the editing to be a lot more fun than the composition. <laughs> and that's where we are opposites. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've heard that before from anyone, that they like editing better than writing. Oh, it's, don't get me wrong. Editing is is not a is 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 a pain in the butt process too, but I'm you know when when I'm writing Cybrosis or I'm writing the the Slipspace works, which is again my next project, where I've got very clear views. Sitting down and just spitting out words is is fun because it just spins. But at the same time, I, I work better when I have known quantity. So being able to take a manuscript and say this is what I have. And this is what I need to turn it into gives me a much stronger starting and end point than I have when I start writing. Because I don't always know where what I'm going to end up with, aside from a collection of 100,000 words, when I sit down and start the first page of the next manuscript. Panzer. You're a panzer. I, it's weird. <laughs> I don't consider myself a panzer because I do try to outline. But at the same time... I'm willing to throw the outline out if it's not working. I don't just stick on it just because that's what I put in the outline and therefore it must be right. I, if anything, I'd call myself a hybrid. A cyborg. Damn right. That's, well, there that's you go. great. Uh, given your process and the way that you like to have your audio work come out as close to simultaneously with the written work as possible, mm -hmm. we've seen an awful lot of changes in the publishing industry in the last couple of years or so. How do you feel these changes have impacted your own work, and if so, in what ways? And how do you feel about these changes? You know, when I started Cybrosis, the thing to do was you write a manuscript, 
you edit it to death, you rewrite it to death, you submit to agents and you wait for them to reject you or ignore you, and you submit to more agents and you wait for them to reject or ignore you, and then you draw your work on something else, or maybe if you're really feeling lucky, you throw it out to some small presses and maybe that occasional big press that's got an open call, and you wait for them to either reject or ignore you and hope to heck that they actually accept you. Now, with respect to those who are listening and those who I am talking to who have managed to to land their small press or large press publication contracts, congratulations, that's stress that I don't want to have to deal with. And with tools coming out and available as easily as they are with Smashwords, Amazon CreateSpace, Barnes & Noble's Pubit, and everything else that's coming down the pipe with, with self-publishing and indie publishing resources, with, with full respect to the industry, I don't see the need to go through that hassle anymore. I will write what I choose to write, and I will produce and publish what I choose to publish. And if people want to read it, they can read it. And if they don't want to read it, they don't have to read it. I, I don't need... And, and keep in mind, I come from an accounting background in my day job, so so I, I this is maybe a little more cynical of a tone than, than is necessarily appropriate. But I don't need a sales, marketing, and accounting team at a New York house saying, oh, well, there's no market for this. No one's going to read it. It's not worth our time. Because I don't believe that's the case. That being said, if New York come if 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 something happens and New York decides they want to you know offer me something, we'll talk. But at the same time, no, no, I mean, I'm, I, I, don't get me wrong here. I, I'm a complete hypocrite in that in that regard. But I don't feel that we as, as writers anymore need to be held down by an established industry that still feels that Courier 12-point font is the way to submit a manuscript. I just don't. <laughs> They're starting to realize it too. I mean, look at this Amazon versus Shet thing that just finally resolved. I got... Cyrosis is published through Amazon's um, Amazon CreateSpace. And I received an email from Amazon where they addressed it to Dear CreateSpace Authors. So they knew I was one of their authors. And I won't read the whole thing. It's been out there. It's all over the place. You can Google it, I'm sure. They were asking me, as an author, to contact a chat and encourage them to accept lower ebook prices than what they wanted to do. So that Amazon would then be more willing to put Hachette titles on their on their listings. Why would I want to do that? As an author, I mean, and again, as a listener I, or as a reader, I'm all for the lower prices, believe me. But as a writer, I don't have the distribution models that these larger companies do. And Amazon wants me to use my pull as an Amazon author to get them to lower their price point so that they can put me on the same listings and same markets I'm in and and then com- and so I can't compete with them on price? Uh, no. So so the industry needs to kind of figure out what it's doing and what it wants to be doing before um, too much longer. But I, I really think the the in, the independent route is a very good way to to look at it going with things. Um, you know, you're gonna get you're gonna get high quality stuff. You're gonna get low quality stuff. But at that point, that's why I let the the market decide what it wants to read. And if there's too much low quality stuff, then people just don't have to buy it. That's very true. Spoken like a true accountant. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, that's your background. Great um, job. <laughs>
the myth number is... Yay! Um, and now it is time for myth number, our word or phrase for the day. And we picked a special one today. Today's word is nemesis. <laughs> Paul Herring, how can having a good nemesis help your writing? Oh, you mean somebody who listens to your podcast decides, you know, I can work, but I can do better than that slacker. That's not what I said. I'm going to I'm going to podcast my own book, which I just happened to finish. And la di da di da. Suddenly KT Brisky's my own nemesis. Is that is that what you're talking about? Is that is that what you're talking about? I think you're dodging the question there. I'm not dodging anything. I'm just making sure that that's what you're talking about. I'm just asking how a good nemesis can help your writing. I think having you around has helped my writing. <laughs> and I think having you around has helped my writing. Anyways, back to the question. Um... <laughs> <laughs> what was the question? Somebody, please. How does it help your writing? Um, ah, yes. I'm nemesis. Got it. There is a certain level of friendly competition when it comes to... The, the whole nemesis idea. Um, you know, this this whole thing started in, in, in our corners of the podcasting world when Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins were putting out books simultaneously and they decided to go to war with each other and do a and it turned into a cross-promotional material for them. But at the same time, being able to have that nemesis who will say, huh, I just wrote 1,500 words today. What have you done? It's like, okay, fine, 1,600, here I come. And suddenly, you know, there's there's a little bit of, of that friendly competition. Okay, and- I, I've got to say something because I, you, you, I'm sitting here cracking up. <laughs> I thought we were talking about how does a good nemesis in the book help your work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I, well, I, it could be interpreted that way too. Yeah, Paul, what are you on about? Oh, oh, that's what, okay. Nice. No, that's not actually what I intended. I was talking about having a, a social nemesis. Seriously, you were? Oh, okay, well, then never mind. <laughs> it's all right. You, you, it's been a long day for all of us. Um, no, because it's nice because not only do I have that, that friendly little competition with Katie, but at the same time, I also have somebody – you know, in, in our nemesis bashing and our, our goofy posed photos at Baltimore of us putting fisticuffs up at each other, I have developed in Katie and, you know, bias alert, um, a really strong friendship and somebody who I know I can turn to if I'm stuck professionally as a writer, personally in my life, or what have you. And and I'd like to say, Katie, you know the same. I mean, I'm not going to turn this into a hug it out. I, I love you, man, conversation. I love you, bro. I love you, bro. Yeah. Um, and here we are. And here we are. Um, but at the same time, it's nice knowing that she's going to keep me honest, either, you know, tongue-in-cheeky as my nemesis in behind the scenes or in front of the scenes and vice versa. Um, you know, there is a, you know, we, we've been collaborating on a, on a secret project and we've been getting on Skype and writing and it's just fun because she'll get on a tear with something and I'll say, all right, nemesis enough. Let me have the damn keyboard. It's like, no, it's mine. And, you know, we get into this, we get into this fun little banter back and forth and it turns what can be, what is, is usually by definition, a very solitary process of sitting down and writing and into a much more relaxed, fun, laughing scenario. Um, you know, Katie, you and I haven't really played up the 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 
at odds with one one another nemesis, at least not yet. Well, I was um, gonna say I probably am coming to Balticon now. Yeah, I know, and we're gonna have we're gonna have we're gonna have words. Um, but it's 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 nice because she's contacted me and she says, "Hey, are you available for X, Y, and Z?" And I'm said, "Yeah, sure, I, I I got you back." And she says, "Good, I'm giving you some of the craziest material I've ever written." I'm like, "Oh, gee, thanks." <laughs> And then she gives me that laugh, um, <laughs> or or vice versa. So I mean, it's it's nice because it turns into this very friendly rivalry, and you can make it as public or as private as you want. And I have a feeling that it'll go it'll go far because um, I've got her prodding me in the back with a with a pencil, and she knows I've got one for her too. So it's all good. <laughs> well, what I appreciate about having you as my nemesis, not to hijack this, um, is that you call me on my bullshit, basically. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Um, and, and it's, you, it's and rare to find... you me on mine, too. Yeah, yeah, but it's rare to find someone that will do that um, in as caring and humorous a way as a, a true nemesis can do. You know, I mean, I mean, you've got the you've got T. Morris walking in with his you know tentacle glove on, declaring himself the Uber nemesis, and then you've got some more of the down to earth, you know. And T. T's a good guy. I'm not in any way throwing him under the bus here, um, but he he plays he always plays it up for laughs and chuckles and and over the topness. But my my nemesis relationship with with Katie has always been more of a a productive partnership with a little bit of rivalry just dropped in for 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 kicks and grins keeps us on our toes absolutely sparring partners yeah yeah, def- yeah that's def- a good way to put it definitely sparring partners well speaking of partners i'm going to hijack this back to the where we were originally supposed to be okay i was i was having too many feelings so let's change the topic <laughs> <laughs> if you could have a dinner party with any seven people living dead or fictional who would you include <laughs> okay you know i have been dreading this question ever since you guys contacted me and said, hey, you want to come on the show? And and I realized, oh, wait, they asked us of everybody. Wait. Yes. Me, Mayor, Paul, that's three people done. You just need four more. Well, there you go. Okay, well, if you're going to be that way about it. Um, but you guys are going to have to well, share. Or, but you can pick your own seven if you want to. We'll just be flies on the wall. Well, I do have an open seat, but I think I know where that seventh seat's going. And no, Katie, you're not getting it. Um, I would. This is this is the list I came up with, and and this is kind of a weird list. So just bear with me. I would I would have Isaac Asimov. Um, you know, foundation. You know, his his early foundation series, his robotics books, his everything. I mean, everything about him. I would just love to sit down and pick his brain. I would have to throw. I would have to invite Stephen Hawking. He's an incredible mind. He's an absolute genius, and I am always envious of everything i ever read or hear him say or do he would be there when i was growing up and i was in college one of the books i read multiple times was contact loved it i would definitely bring carl sagan to the to the table arthur clark would be coming to the table and you know much more tongue-in-cheek because i've got to lighten this up with some comedy i'd be bringing richard castle i i I need his boyish good looks i need a sense of humor and and to talk shop from one writer to the next i'd also be inviting olivia wilde to the dinner and the reason i'd be inviting olivia wilde to the dinner is because if i were ever casting cybrosis as a movie she's at the top of my list to play cyrus (laughs) she really is 
And then the seventh seat is still open. So I guess I would maybe pull the joker on you guys and tell you guys that we're going to have tryouts for the last seat and there's only one seat left. So have at. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Aggressive expansion. But no, if I mean all talking, all, all seriousness aside, I really don't have a seventh seat. I mean, I could say I would invite Cyrus uh, just just to see how that conversation went. Um, you that would bring be, Chen. Chen would be an interesting choice to that dinner. Yeah, I could see that. She's very she's in 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 Cybrosa, She's very reserved, but she when she does speak, she she's got something to say. I'd be very interested to see Chen. That's a good suggestion, Katie. You're welcome. So thank you right. for giving up. So thank you for giving up your non-existency to the to Chen. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, what question do you never get asked that you wish someone would ask you? In oh an my interview? lord! And what would you answer? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, people really rag on the question of where do you get your ideas from, and I understand why authors rag on that because it it, it does sound like a like a cliched question. But I can understand the, that certain that people, when they're trying to brainstorm or they're trying to get "quote unquote" into the business, have a hard time figuring out what they want to write about. And I would say that that's a question that I wouldn't mind being asked, because I would tell them, and not in a sarcastic way, not in a in a mean way. I would tell them to pick up the newspaper, pick up a magazine, watch the news, and just absorb, because that's where the ideas come from. I mean, I, I, I pulled the initial idea for Cybrosis out of an image I found on the internet of a young woman on a motorcycle in a noir-like setting. And that became chapter one, and then the rest spawned from that. Uh, the second book in, in, this, in the Codename Cyrus series deals a lot with, or is, once I get it to where I want it to be, is going to try to deal a lot with a hacktivist group a la, a la Anonymous. Um, you know, we see, we hear about them every day when, you know, if they're between whatever they're doing and there, there's, there's an idea right there. We have the recent, you know, say what you will about the politics and everything else. We have the recent hack on Sony over the, over the, uh, over the, the movie, the interview and whether or not North Korea was involved is probably still up for debate. But at the same time, that's the stuff that that a story comes out of. Um, I get a lot of I, I get a lot of copies of Popular Science and Popular Mechanics magazines that have a lot of conceptual ideas on future tech and things like that, or stuff that's obscure that you may not hear about. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at things. I'm like, oh, I need to find a way to put that into the next book, or ooh, this needs to be filed away for future use kind of a things. And suddenly ideas just start spawning up all over the place. That's, that's really it. And I think it's one question that people are afraid to ask because I think authors have, um, have, have turned it into a, a stigma of, where the hell do you think I get my ideas? You know, And I, I don't know that I agree with that. Looking a little deeper. I like it. Um, so everyone has their own personal myths, things people think about us that may or may not be true, uh, their own personal myth behaviors, if you will. Uh, so Paul, what myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? Um, I think people believe that I'm a lot more organized than I really am. I believe the phrase that 
a lot of people use when it comes to me is you got your shit together. And I'm like, you don't know me very well, do you? I am, I am not the most organized either in practice or in principle as, as I like to let people believe some of that is, you know, lifestyle. Some of that's mental. Some of there's, there's a lot of different pieces to that. Um, but I do live in a almost consistent state of organized chaos. You know, I can't have my my workspace to be so pristine that everything is in the, is in its exact right place, because inevitably it's going to get moved, and I'm just going to leave it somewhere, and then I will know where I left it. But somebody else coming in is going to see it and say, "What the heck is all this mess about?" So, in terms of my own personal level of organization and having it all together, quote unquote, I don't think I'm nearly as is there as some people might think, imply, or believe. Okay, so what misbehavior do people believe about you that is true? I'm a snarky SOB. I was going to say he's a nerd. I'm a nerd. Let's see now. I I was playing Metroid Prime this morning, Eve a little bit this afternoon. There'll be Star Trek on the TV tonight. Yes, nerd. Uh, So, Paul, uh, just to wrap things up, what can you tell us about your next projects? Anything you'd like to plug for us? Well... The next project uh, will be the release of Subspace Harbinger. It is the start of a three-book trilogy in a space opera franchise. This is kind of my um, love letter. I mean, it, it's it's my inspir- it's it's the the inspiration behind it. If I would call it, would be Star Trek meets Bad Five meets the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. It is currently in podcast pre- podcast production at the moment, and later on this summer, I'm hoping to get it into the copy editor for work there, and hoping for a bit of I'm hoping for a late 2014 release. It may be, or excuse me, late 2015 release. It may be early 2016, but it will be a full podcast novel, full cast with background music, like I did with Cybrosis as well as a concurrent E and print release. So that's the next big project. I've got a co- I have in terms of existing projects that have just come out, I have a short story in the recent Tales of a Tesla Ranger anthology that has been put out by the uh, by T Morris in memory of the late PG Holyfield as a fundraiser for um, his his family and his estate. So I strongly encourage you guys to go check that out. Um, and just as a little bit of a tease, the story that I contribute to that is a Agent Chen origin story in the Codename Cyrus universe. So if you like the Chen character, you might want to read that one. I will be on a writer's retreat at the end of February, and I've got a couple of other projects in the hopper that I can't really quite talk about in much detail as yet, but stay tuned. Hey, those <laughs> sound like awesome projects. I, I'm, I'm looking I, forward to I'm I'm excited about them. Yeah, you should be. That 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 Agent Chen origin story. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read that. that and it's a good, it's good. a good cause too. It is a very good cause. And like this, and like the Cybrosis, the first codename Cyrus novel, um, the Agent Chen short story came inspired from a photo I found on the internet. <laughs> so there you go. There. Yeah, I love that. So. You know, it's that time where we've come to the end of our show, Paul. Thank you so very much for being our guest today. Oh, anytime. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Uh, thanks for taking your time, my nemesis. 
Um, and I'm actually really looking forward to mo- both stuff more with uh, Cyrus and also Slipspace, because you've been teasing me about that for a long time. <laughs> well, in full disclosure, you'll be seeing it soon because you're the copy editor I have on in tap. In question, so. yes. Yes. Ah. So she'll, she'll be, she's looking forward to that one. So. Well, I think we all are. And, and remember, everyone, you can go to misbehaving.com for more information on PC Hearing, along with links to his books. You can also read his bio and find links to his various and sundry social media platforms. Don't forget, you can download this episode on iTunes or listen to it right on the misbehaving.com website. And please take a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to us right on iTunes. So, thanks for tuning in to Misbehaving, and we'll see you next time. I'm Katie. I'm the other Paul. And I'm Mare. And we are Misbehaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon. This episode is copyright 2015 by Misbehaving Productions in association with Wireless Adventures and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.